Hello and welcome to Beer and Bites, your regular digital and marketing podcast that is produced by MRM, Financial Services Communication Company. You've me, Amy Rowe, and you've got Michael Taggart. Apologies for that. Say hello, Mikey T. I'll let that one go. Hello, Mikey T. This week, we sat down with personal finance journal and broadcaster, Kalpana Fitzpatrick. When she's not writing for the Nationals about finance, she's blogging about her own life over at mummymoneymatters.com. we've got some beers Michael what have you got there and and tell us the story behind it I've got Hogstar a new English lager and the story behind it is that you you handed it to me five minutes ago and asked me <laughs> to taste it which is uh, quite an amazing tale but there's a longer story a longer historical there is. Uh, okay this is this beer is all about the science it's from the Hogstar Hogback Brewery no, no, I mean, the, the Bamfords gave it to us. The Bamfords from Informed Choice in Cranley, Sorry, so thank I was, you. I was going to go to the brewery, then to Informed Choice, I, and I then really, to the studio. We've got to be thinking mindful of the time, Michael. Okay. Thank Do you, you Bamfords. Yeah, it came from the Bamfords from Informed Choice because they just wanted us to elevate us culturally and get us drinking good beer, and my, this is a good beer. Um, it's got loads of herbs. It's got five different types of hops. It's not pasteurized. It's a really nice old lager. And I'm just going to... Oh, I mean, you can just taste the quality. It's amazing. Yeah, I definitely recommend that. I'm going to give that a high eight, teetering expectantly on a nine. That's 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 beautiful, Michael. Um, I've got hop art which is a hoppy blonde pale ale um and uh it's brewed in farnham also near cranley obviously um so thank you martin and this is absolutely delicious it's sort of light um it's full of flavor and um it's i love craft beer anyway so i'm gonna give it a nine out of ten Michael, something we were talking about earlier this week, which is a really interesting spat that you've been witnessing and, and delving into, which is um, a spat between Channel 4 and Facebook. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's Channel 4 News, to be more precise, but they've basically garnered a huge number of followers um, by using Facebook recently. So they've gone from around about 80 million video views on the internet per year. That's a figure for 2014. They've gone right up to two billion per year and that's because they're just really providing the sort of content that fe- people on facebook mm. like the sort of strokey beardy sort of millennial types um but it what what it's doing at the moment is it's complaining quite bitterly actually the, when i say it i mean channel four news that it gets and i quote a tiny minuscule amount of money for for all those video views so facebook is basically keeping mm. the vast majority of the ad revenue that goes along with them holy heck pants is that is is that all no 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 there's more actually there's oh. the, there's more that they've complained about and this is quite serious so a considerable amount of traffic is also generated by people ripping off channel 4 news's best coverage and dubbing or subtitling those films to create what we've uh, a phrase we've heard a lot recently mm. fake news um, and that often obviously serves a particular political agenda. So for those who don't really know what I'm talking about, an example might be um, Channel 4 News' 
really gripped the nation with its reports from Aleppo in Syria. Mm. It got 300 million views on its coverage of Aleppo last year, but there were 100 million views on videos that ripped off that coverage, stuck fake subtitles on it or fake dubbing, and basically created fake news. So it's fake news and not getting revenue. Okay, that's not great. And I'm just going to play devil's advocate here because um, surely it wouldn't be able to reach that amount of people without Facebook having the reach it does. I mean, doesn't this happen to others as well? Why is Channel 4 special? Well, I'm sure it must happen to others. But the first thing to say is um, that the BBC, for example, which is the obvious other example, is bankrolled by the taxpayer. So it's not massively concerned about getting advertising money from Facebook. In fact, I'm not even sure it's allowed to. doesn't need Zuck's bucks. So um, Channel 4 News, admittedly, is also funded, and it's mm. funded by uh, its par- the parent Channel 4. But actually, the government is now thinking of privatising Channel 4. And let's face it, when um, a load of new suits come in, one of the first things they're going to look at is the news budget, and they might well rip that to pieces. And then Channel 4 News is going to have to start getting this advertising review yeah. from Facebook. Um, it's actually, um, by the way, the most now the most viewed European news outlet on Facebook, which I think is quite astonishing, ahead of the BBC. And that is largely because of its coverage of the Syrian war. So what, what is it going to be? What, what is it going to do then? Well, it can it can shout about this, which is exactly <coughs> what their um, editor, a guy who's amusingly called Bendy Pear, I think it's Bender Pear, I think, but um, he's he's shouting about it. And he was at a panel conference the other day, and he stood up, apoplectic, pl- apoplectic with rage, <laughs> uh, and basically castigated Facebook. I mean, th- there's a long quote, but it essentially he, he he said, "How much money have you Facebook made from fake news?" What have you done with that money, and uh, and what what are you spend? How much are you spending combating fake news? So you remember Mark Zuckerberg last week or the week before? Yeah, they've been quite. Um, I thought they've been quite PR. They got some good PR out of that. They're saying they're cracking they, down they on. They came fake out news. with a, a, a big um, <coughs> treatise on uh, on fake news and 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 all sorts of stuff, mm. and and it did look like good PR. But then you lift up the carpet, and all this dirt's lying underneath. Okay, talking about dirt lying underneath. So just leave listeners with them. Um, Let's actually leave them with the facts lying underneath. Have you got any? Okay, well, there's some interesting facts in the story. So, for example, Channel 4 News is growing in the old in the old fashioned sense on TV massively. So it's got audiences of up to a million now for its um, evening shows. So that's well above its old rival Newsnight um, on BBC Two. And so we're seeing an amazing new phenomenon where instead of getting more reach by going onto Facebook, these organisations are getting more reach on Facebook and then more reach on TV because they're getting so much reach on Facebook. So that's quite an interesting facet of this. Um, Channel 4 News, for those who don't really watch it, specialises in really complex and lengthy investigations. So you've got people like Michael Crick, who's the political journalist, exposing MPs' expenses. You've got um, Kathy Newman, who did an amazing and powerful um, series on child abuse in, in the north of England. And you've got people like um, Krishnan Gurumurthy. But he, he's done a series from Aleppo, which is quite amazing. And, and another journalist called Matt Fry, people will have heard of, that he did a great series from Berlin. Um, but the most astonishing fact of this whole story, I thought, Amy, was guess how many, how many people Channel 4 News has working for it? How many? 130. And of those, only 12 are working on digital. Now, just compare for a second. O-M-G. 
Just compare that for a second. O- Sit down. Sit down. Um, FQ. Just just compare that for a second to the BBC's digital team. Well, yeah. Which is uh, a team of they've got three thousand. And they've got a specific team on trending alone. Yeah. So you've got twelve people versus three thousand, and yet because Channel Four Up News. Up Channel Four News. Yep. So this, for me, is a story that we're probably going to be bringing on to Beer and Bites a lot in the future. One of the news organisations has lifted its head above the parapet. Effectively, the the biggest on Facebook. The others all follow. So, you know, watch watch this space. So crossing over to the from the media sphere to the blogosphere, what's been happening on the money blogs this week, Michael? Well, one that stood out for me was a, a blog over at Miss Thrifty. So if people are interested in that site, just Google Miss Thrifty. And it was about something that we talk about almost every day in the office, and I'm sure everyone else does. Mm. And it's um, basically how to go from a house buying zero to a homeowning hero, basically. So how do, how do you get a mortgage? So she's come up with some interesting tips, and it's not the same as all the, the normal stuff. It's things like getting over your FOMO, fear of missing out, which is something that people always have and spend a lot of money as a result. Selling clutter. Um, she's got some quite interesting ideas on cutting household expenses um so i thought the post was a little bit different um and there's um there's some videos in fact there's um six videos of about one to two minutes with um which give it i just think a lovely sort of personal touch so i'd go and look at that one if i was listening to this now what about you amy is there anything on the money blogosphere that's caught your eye this week yes actually um it's a blog called a disease called debt that listeners might may have heard of um it was a really interesting piece earlier this week might have been written to chime with valentine's day which we had last week but uh all about how to talk about finance when you're married so there was oh yeah, tricky topic tricky topic for some yeah so one of the t- the tips was talk about money early on in the marriage and i'd probably add to that talk about it before you get married um draw up a prenup whether you well i suppose that is that point draw up a prenup and whether you keep separate bank accounts and how you talk about finances and your expectations honestly it's a good post you should go and have a look right so this is very similar to something that you've been writing actually and over on the mouthy money blog haven't you asked people about their experiences relating to their relationships and money yeah i had really heartwarming responses so i asked about six couples and i I sent them an exhausting list i have to say of questions about how they manage their finances do they share bank accounts how they talk about debt uh all that kind of stuff and i had some really interesting responses so most people do uh, most of these people i think 90 percent of the couples that wrote back to me five couples essentially they share bank accounts but um one of them said that they keep receipts so i'll just read out a quote from alison jonty that's not their real names uh we keep well, I should hope it's not. <laughs> yeah, I know, you're having a bit of fun there. Um, okay, so Alice says, We keep all receipts from purchases for food, booze, household goods, bet bills, etc. They all go in a tin, and then at the end of the month or thereabouts, we sit down together and add up how much each has spent and the difference and who owes who and how much. We always have a laugh and some bants doing this. I always make John T cross off any cigarette-related purchases, and he scans in a light-hearted manner obs for things like bikini waxing strips. This all sounds a bit forced to me. Um, actually, no, fair play to them if they are take looking at it in that much detail. 
Um, but yeah, and playing... no, no, no. I I get what you mean. It, it surely at some stage that will become unsustainable. And I actually I spoke yeah. to another couple who are twenty years married, and one of them was a finance uh, is a financial director, and she used to do a very similar system with receipts with him because they earned a very uh, a very different amount a month, and in the end they just decided I'll sod this. Let's just all pile in, which I think a lot of couples end up doing. And the, the interesting thing was talking to people who earned different amounts. But even more interesting was when I asked them about whether they had kind of spoken about the possibility of um, debt, i.e. if one of you falls into debt, is the other, is their debt your debt? And surprisingly, about 50% of them hadn't discussed it. Wow. Haven't even discussed that. Well, I think I think it's it's quite it, it is a difficult thing to say. Oh, hey, what if um, suddenly you rack up fifty k in debt? Most people would say that's never going to happen, but we never know. Do you want Agony Uncle Michael's view on this? Yeah, there is a then. way around that if you don't think to have that sort of discussion, and that's actually what me and my wife do. I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying we we share our money, mm-hmm. so we do have separate bank accounts for presents and stuff like that. Um, but we share the vast majority of our money, and and I think that's just a, a really transparent way to do things. I understand if people don't want to, but if you sprinkle that with a little bit of um, "don't tell the spouse what you don't think they need to know," then happy times. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. You should make this a regular spot. I'm really excited about something we're doing this week. Well, what's that? It doesn't involve me, does it? Yeah, it does. <sighs> oh, are you ready? Um, it's your it's your new segment, isn't it? Your your media minute, yep. which is where you discuss something that uh, a, a massive topic in the media, and you have sixty seconds in which to tell us the listeners all about it. So go. Well, Amy, it's the one year anniversary around about, of The Guardian's three-year plan to break even, so by 2019. But it said it wanted to do this by staying true to its philosophy of providing free online journalism, like that or loathe it. I mean, uniquely among any uh, among all national newspapers, it's actually run by a, a non-profit trust to provide journalism. But it's still hemorrhaging money. Despite cutting 250 jobs, scaling back the US operation... Um, and a few other small things. It's basically run a 60 million debt this financial year already. Now, the Scott Trust has 700 million pounds in the bank, so it doesn't sound too bad. But with an annual burn of 90 million, what do we give them? What, a decade? So so there is trouble there. And the reason is it's put all its chips in digital advertising, uh, which has plateaued because nearly all the growth in that, and there has been growth, has gone to Google and Facebook. Why? because they're just brilliant at targeting, basically. We've talked about that before. So this talk, the Guardian might go tabloid um, so they can sell off their expensive Berliner presses. Um, so that would be interesting if that happens. But And this talk of them expanding this idea of the of the membership. So they have 200,000 membership members mm. to their website who pay, I can't remember exactly how much, but they pay a certain amount every year and they get nothing in return at well, all. Well, hang on. They do get invited to special events. There's different tiers, aren't there, of membership? Sorry, I've interrupted your minute, but it is really interesting. Yeah, that's and right. Let's say the minute's over because I've discussed yeah, the yeah, issue. But you're, you're right. They, they do get various tiers, but at the basic level, they mm. get virtually nothing. And they're doing it, it really is, out of the kindness of their hearts because they support a movement um, that they agree with. In other words, a liberal free press. So the question is, how does The Guardian stop the rot? 
Should it go international? It's tried that already. Um, or should it, as I believe, play up its liberal, sli- slightly leftish credentials in this post-Brexit, post-Donald Trump world? So answers on a postcard, listeners. Uh, well, was, can I, can how, I jump in? How quick in was that, I by think? the way? That was a little bit over a minute, but fascinating topic. Cause it's all into how, how do you kind of pay for content? Should content be free? Something that Guardian has obviously been really vocal about in the past. And I'd say... Really, if The Guardian values its readership and it values its writers and it values everybody else that works at that organisation, it will start asking people to pay up and do it properly, not through this stupid idea of membership, which I used to like, but now I think, come on, Guardian, we need to stand up for the fact that we need to pay for content on the internet. Yep, couldn't agree more. Not all content, but content from the, um, the newspapers, the national newspapers, is generally brilliant. And brilliant news uh, content has to be funded. You have to pay journalists who earn yeah. high salaries. What kind of message does it tell people? If you're saying it's it's free, it doesn't. You don't need to pay for it. Why 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 should you have? Why is it? Why should it be free? Amy. Yeah. Am we've, I getting angry? We've agre- no, we've agreed on something. This is quite this funny. Let's let's leave it. Okay. Now we've got that interview with. Kalpana Fitzpatrick, who is a journalist and broadcaster, as well as a money blogger extraordinaire. And here's that interview now. Kalpana, it's brilliant to have you in the studio. Um, thanks for coming in. No problem. Uh, so can you tell us just, just a little bit about, you're obviously a, a money blogger, you, you're big on the money blogger circuit, but you're also a freelance journalist and that's actually what you were doing before you started blogging. Is that right? Yes, so um, I was a freelance journalist and I still am a freelance journalist um, and I do also run a website called Mummy Money Matters and the two kind of go well because obviously I write about money on my blog but also being a financial journalist um, kind of gives me um, sort of a good background I think to kind of reach out to my audience and say hey, you know, I know what I'm talking about here. We're seeing, okay, the rise, we are seeing the rise and rise of the, the money blogger, we feel. I just want that perhaps it's just obviously because that's the sector we're really interested in, uh, beer and bikes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the case? And w- are you getting to the point, really, where the blogging's leading the, the freelance journalism or, or is it going the other way around? It's a mixed bag. So, yes, quite occasionally, the both go hand in hand. So some people want me because I am Mummy Money Matters and and a journalist and some people want me just as a journalist so um but I do also a lot of um tv stuff radio stuff and a lot of that comes from being mummy money matters so and that's quite good um so the both yes yeah so they go hand in hand but they also go their own way as well which is good I think Mm. like I like that do you think for a journalist nowadays developing their personal brand and showing, well, personal being the operative word, showing a little bit about themselves and showing a bit about their lives like like you do with your blog is is, impo- is sort of imperative for success? Yes. Yes, it is. Actually, um, I, I see journalists sometimes who don't necessarily run a blog, but they do sometimes share their personal stories in a newspaper that they might write for themselves. So, yes, and I think it, it does. It's about building a brand because you can walk away from a newspaper job and then you know you were like for example I worked at the FT group mm. I was a VAT journalist on on Pensions Week magazine which is the magazine I worked for 
when I left that, it was like, okay, who am I now? So it really gives you that identity that you can carry with you as a blogger, but from job to job as well. And I think that's quite important. And it's, I think it just gives you such a strong base to have a blog. I would absolutely recommend anyone, you know, who's got a lot to say and thinks they're in a position to build a brand and they should, why not? So how, how does that literally work then, Kalpana? Do you, you think there might be um, commissioning editors or people on news desks who are literally interested in, in the, the blogs of, of freelance reporters and journalists? Absolutely. So I'm just going to give you an example. So I started writing for Daily Mail's Female um, a couple of years ago. And one of the things that really um, triggered them was the fact that I write about money. And they liked the fact that I had Mummy Money Matters because it was almost like I've I found an audience that um, they, you know, they can relate to, I can relate to. And, you know, I was asked to, well, we, you know, we don't write enough about money. Please, can you come on board and write about money for us? And we really want to, we really want to target that mum audience. So it's really finding a niche. And I think that's, that's important because if, it, if you start writing about a subject as big as personal finance and... If you if you're not targeting a niche, then it's, it's it can get lost. And so it must really work quite well in the commercial world as well. So I mean, I mean, the, the brand that everyone thinks about is Mothercare. I mean, I can just imagine a marketer who wouldn't know as much about freelance journalists as a news desk editor, kind of going onto the internet and looking about for who's writing about this sort of stuff. Again, is that how it works? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes people get a bit confused and they, they see the mummy part, but they don't see the money part. So they start offering me things and I'm like, OK, I don't write about that. But um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you you probably do get a lot of marketing people who sort of might, you know, do a little random search for mum's money. And um, hopefully I do come up on that little list. What's What's the worst experience you've had of being commissioned? Um, I haven't had into the juggler there. Ah, oh, it's like okay. I haven't had any bad experiences of being commissioned um, commissioned for anything. Um, generally, I'm quite good. Like if I get commissioned for something, I will take it on if I feel comfortable with it and if it falls into my brand. However, I do get some very strange emails. So I've had people offer me baby bum cream. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, cracked nipple cream. Recently, someone said if I would like to write about shoes for mums with bunions. And I'm like, okay, totally got the target audience wrong for this. So, yeah, I, I think it's more a case of the strange things that I get offered and emailed about. And All of those things seem really quite appealing to me, actually. Oh, actually, I had a bacon-scented underwear as well. No, that uh, doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I could go back to him and say I don't want it, but um, they don't. They don't. <laughs> the thing is, I I was I'm not in a position to review them or write about them, and I think it could really throw your audience off. So if I'm commissioned for something, whether it's as a freelance journalist or as Mummy Money Matters, I think it's really important that you're comfortable and that it fits in with your brand. Because if you just start doing things for the sake of a bit of money and it doesn't fit in with your brand or your audience, you're, you're going to lose that audience, basically. So you've talked about the sort of um, the, the bizarre request you might have had um, when, you know, uh, to your blogging, for your blogging site, sorry, stumbling over a bit there. Um, what about when you've been in a newsroom or working for a paper? 
What's the sort of... We all know that working as a journalist and indeed in PR can be quite stressful. Have you ever experienced any other any time where you, you thought, oh, I'm a journalist, get me out of here, or anything like that? Um, well, um, I'm trying to think back. <laughs> so I've, I've occasionally had PRs phone me and tell me off about an article. and Tell you off? Yeah, but the funny thing is, it's not actually been my article where they've just got um, publications mixed up. So and Ooh. I've had quite a few phone calls like that. It's like, oh, you wrote about this and you've got it wrong and you know this was off the record. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Please just go away. And and there's been a couple of times where they haven't even apologised and you know mm. slammed the phone down. I was like, you, you admit your mistake at least, please. Um, but on the whole, I think I've had quite a good experience like in my journalism career and I've mm. been quite proud of it and quite happy with it. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's it's stressful. I think one of some of the hardest things is actually also when you're um, trying to write a story and you don't want to, you know, you realise you're serving an audience, you want to serve that audience, but at the same time you don't want to alienate people. So it really depends on trying to get that balance right, I think. But on the whole, I would say, and it sounds really boring, I know, but I have had quite a good journalism career and, mm. um, you know, it started well, It's it's been going well. Even as a freelance journalist, it's been going well. Um and and I love the fact that you know I've got a blogging career out of it as well. Um, just jumping now to back back to PR. Um, I think one of one of the hardest things that I've experienced in my few years working in PR, um, away from journalism now, is the amount of publications mentioning no names that when you're trying to pitch, they don't actually pick up the phone. Is that something that you've seen uh, uh, evolve? Is that something you've noticed? Is it sort of the evolving side of, of journalism or is it just perhaps... You mean you find you, the journalists don't pick up the phone? Yeah. Yes, I think we're a lot busier and I think we're... Um, also, it's it's not so hard to find stories nowadays. Um, okay, so I'm go, going, going to go back to the money example. So if you... I'm not going to name any publications, but there are a lot of publications out there um, what they do is they just look at people's blogs and then they write about what these bloggers are doing and some of these bloggers aren't even aware that they've been written about. So I think the, the hunt for stories isn't as desperate. I think a lot of things land on your desk a lot more easily and social media allows that. So um, I, a random subject, I could go around looking on the internet. Oh, someone's got a really interesting blog. Oh, look what they've done. I can, I can make a story out of something if I wanted to. Um, Twitter allows you to get hold of information a lot quicker. So I think for PRs, it's a lot harder to pitch stories to journalists now. Um, and, yeah, I think it's it's a lot harder. I mean, I, I remember when I used to work at Pensions Week and someone would phone me up and say, I've got a story for you. You go to press on Friday. So where, you, you know, it was a those times where you could survive as a weekly publication and I'm going to give you this exclusively and the story might not be great but okay yeah we've got it exclusively but I think now with social media I think that's a lot harder for the PRs to pitch stories to people because information is out there so easily. Yeah I mean I, I remember actually sort of 10 years ago when or maybe 13, 14 years ago when Google just kind of started up how amazed I was at what a great tool it was. And I was sort of sat on it till three in the morning trying to find stories <laughs> for the Crawley News. But um, if Twitter had been around, I'd, that would have just been a whole other thing for me. So is, that, um, is, is Twitter part of your everyday as a journalist looking for stories? Yes and no. Um, so to be honest, 
so if I'm looking for information, journal request on Twitter will work a lot faster than actually phoning up a PR and asking for something. And I've, I do a mixed um, bag of both things. So sometimes I want to speak to someone, I'll phone up a PR, but the amount of time that it takes for people to get back to me, actually, I could have just put that on Twitter, at, on their company Twitter account, and I'll probably get a faster response. So but Just for the listeners, that's the journal request hashtag, which a lot of journalists put on tweets when they're asking for help. Yes. Yep. basically and um and we prs are constantly monitoring are you the, the good you see it, but that's so it's such a quick way for me to get a response so if i'm after something quite often um yes i will phone prs you guys do a great job and obviously i still want to speak to you guys but if i want something in a hurry then sometimes twitter works for me and and but also just you know if, if news has broken out about something um, the amount of information that's you know following onto Twitter is so quick. It's I think mm. PR is going to have to work a little faster. What's what's your view on this? Change the subject slightly on this whole new fake news epidemic, and and it which seems to have hit us from nowhere. Mm. Is it just people coming up with a clever word for, or phrase for what's always been around? Or are we genuinely in a frightening era where people are just, uh, big websites are just deliberately putting out false stories? I think fake news has been around forever. Um, I still remember when I was at school and someone holding up a, a tabloid newspaper saying, and the front page story was, my son has turned into a fish finger. So that is <laughs> fake news. But quite, re- you know, I think it's always been around, but I think we're more aware of it now. And again, I think social media helps us be aware of it. I mean, just at the weekend, there was a story going around in all the newspapers about Chris Moore was a radio DJ losing five stones and his diet strategy. And actually, he put on his Facebook page saying, very blatantly, this is fake news, do your research. I have lost weight, but, you know, I haven't had a diet strategy. I haven't had a fitness team, etc. And that was interesting that someone has sort of come out and say, Look, this is fake news. I don't know where all the papers have got this story from. This is quite amazing because I was this picture of Chris Moyles actually passed around the dinner table that I was at. So I can see why, if it's fake news, that people would want to do it. Well, it's not just fake news, is it? It's websites. It's entire websites and monetizing strategies very cleverly set up now. I think it's the um, organisation behind it which is the scary bit that we that's hit us kind of around the face. Yes, absolutely. I mean. If you go on Facebook, the number of stories that are shared, and then you look at the source as well, and I just think, why are you sharing this? Who is this person saying this? I think, and this is I think where, I think it's, it's sad when it when it comes from a newspaper fake news, and I think that's damaging to journalists because I always think, you know, the journalists should be able to differentiate themselves by saying actually, you know, I'm a journalist. I mean, I wouldn't dare write something that I didn't know was true or hadn't checked a fact upon, and. Um, and I think, you know, I think as a journalist, I would like to just say to just don't do that. And um, I can't see how, why it would happen. Um, I've never um, written for an institution. Well, none of my articles have done that, um, etc. But yeah, it's, 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 you know, um, this, there is one thing that we've been we've noticed, and I'm sure you have, but it's just the the subscriptions to the New York Times has just um, exploded um, due to people presumably um, wanting to read something they trust in in new Trump fake news era. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that actually, conversely, journalism will now start paying for itself again? Um, I I hope so. Um, it's hard to say because I still think 
fake news is still coming from some newspapers as well. So it's this, when do you trust a journalist? I think that question is on the minds of a lot of people. Our friends say to, oh, journalists, it's like, you, I feel that there's, as a journalist, you almost have to nowadays prove yourself a bit. And it it does depend where you write. Um, but yeah, if you depends what you get caught up in as well. Yeah, I was reading a story on the way in here this morning, actually, which someone sent me, which was about how artificial intelligence has been weaponized um, to create fake news. And I, I kind of tweeted about it. I was amazed and, and alarmed. And then the person who sent it to me said, do you believe this story? And I realized that actually the, it might be fake news about yeah. fake news. And, it, and, it, and I, I thought, well, my God, we're now in an era where you just cannot trust anything unless yeah. you already trust it. So you, you just don't know. You don't know what's real and what's not. Um, I'm just going to go back to that Chris Moore story. I mean, anyone reading that, why, why should they question it? But if he hadn't come out and say, look, you know, I haven't had this fitness strategy. I haven't been on this huge diet or something. I've just taken three easy steps of exercise, stop eating bread, whatever it is he's doing. But yeah, I think it's it's hard. It's hard to know when you're reading something and whether to know it's fake or not, like you've just said. Um, I'm going to make a really absurd link now between the lessons financial services, the financial services industry has had to learn from um, from its um, bad times Mm -hmm. um, and what journalism is going through now. Do you think financial services could teach um, journalists a thing or two about sort of um, trust? No. (laughs) No. There's no risk warnings involved. No. um, I, I... I think um, financial institutions, they still have a long way to go in terms of also building trust with consumers. And I'm just going to go back to why there are so many money bloggers out there, because we are talking to an audience to a level that they understand and appreciate. And I guess if you're building the right audience, they trust you as well. Um, And I I think, um, you know, as a blogger, but also as a journalist, I get approached by banks and financial institutions to write for them as well, because they want to reach an audience at a certain level now. And I think they're seeing that. And um, I think in terms of building that trust as well. So Kalpana, who actually pays better? I mean, is it the news organisations or is it the commercial commercial organisations like banks? Commercial organisations like banks will generally pay better. That's when they're willing to pay because quite often, as a blogger, I'd say, I get approached quite a lot and say, will you give us a bit of um, copy on this? We're really keen to target mums um, and we want it to come from someone who's, you know, got a community and is trustworthy. But then they say, actually, we're not, we're not going to pay you, but we'll put your blogging out on our webpage. And I just think, I've got two hungry kids. You've got to pay me. It takes time. You know, time is money, in my opinion. Is there any circumstance <laughs> under which you would do that for free? Um, I mean, see, I don't really like working for exposure. I don't, I don't think that's fair to say to someone who's... I do. I'm a total follower's whore. I mean, if someone said to me, you can write a piece on the BBC and it will have your Twitter handle in it, I'd probably pay them money to do that. <laughs> so, um... Okay, so may, maybe um, it depends on what level of exposure you're getting. So yeah. I have done it in the past and actually the exposure isn't that great because it depends on how they're going to promote it as well. 
So if they say we're going to stick it on our website and actually um, I'm not going to name a bank that I did this for and it wasn't a lot of work so I, I did it and I did get paid but I thought actually it's a really big bank, the exposure's got to be good so I'll do it um, and I went to look for it and I could not find it anywhere right because it was hidden in somewhere did they have to prove any figures to you at all no I didn't ask for that which I probably should have but so I, I emailed the PR who asked me to do it and I said where is it she sent me a link and I was like how on earth is a consumer going to go on your website and find that and to me that wasn't worth it so I'd probably never so I would probably want a bit more upfront information about what exposure I'm going to get but on the whole I think it's fair practice to say we want this it's going to take you a bit this much time we can pay you x amount because that's just fair they do that on city am now they've actually packaged things up haven't they they've um where they i think they enter into an agreement with people who have um sponsored content on the site where they they will promise them a certain amount of exposure on the front page for a certain amount of days etc which i believe is a model that um that the banks etc really do need to start following that's quite quite a um it's quite a surprising story yeah (laughs) no it is I just think if you want someone to help you target an audience and you want them for who they are then I think you've just got to pay for things and yes I I do agree you know um you know if someone just wants a quote or something fine but if they actually want you to write something then I think you have to and I think just banks or any you know institution really if you're going to ask someone to do work for you step up and pay that really, to be honest, it's quite upsetting when people say, we can't pay you. And it's like, why are you phoning me? <laughs> Go away. Well, thanks for coming in, Calvin. It's been fascinating hearing your views on all the controversial topics that surround your industry. Um, what, where can people find you if they want to have a look at your blog or have a look at your freelance work? So my blog is mummymoneymatters.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Kalpener Fitz and at Mum Money Matters. Um, I also have a Facebook page where I share a lot of my content. So if you just, um, it's Facebook Kalpener Fitzpatrick, and um, it's not a personal account. So um, and yeah, so you know I write on loads of papers, um, um, Daily Mail, Female, Good Housekeeping magazine, etc. So I'm a bit of a Google whack, Kalpener Fitzpatrick. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Kalpener Fitzpatrick in the world. <laughs> Lovely. So just Google me. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Do you know what I have to say? I found that interview massively heartwarming because Calvin has been on both sides of the fence, that PR side and the journalist side, and she's seen the sort of struggles that both sides of the media do cope with day to day, and it was just brilliant having the chinwag. Yeah, and I can say from a personal perspective, I've also been on both sides, and I've got nothing useful to say on the topic, so cheers, Calpiner. <laughs> Oh, Michael, that's not very fair. Okay, so uh, before we uh, we are running out of time for this week's episode, you'll be pleased to know. But before we go, we've got a little oh, yeah. teaser, haven't we? Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Actually, um, what I wanted to say, Amy, is we've got in the can, which we won't play now, but we've got a fascinating interview with um, a guy called Richard Donnell from a company called HomeTrack, which produces an index on housing. And Richard gave us some fascinating insights into the communications around housing across the nation and how people's lives are affected um, by the messages that are coming out of the industry. Now, here's just a tiny snippet of that to whet the appetite of listeners. Your position in people's 
inbox when they yes. see stuff coming from you as a brand that they they know it's good quality and they want to open it. It's probably no different to what a lot of the news media wants, and it's all about content now. It's all about having it being trusted for delivering the right kind of information. So again, all we can control is what we're pushing out and creating that brand, and then we have to push it out widely, social media, emails, national media. Um, I don't, and as long as that's all we can control, that's what we need to focus on. Um, and building that brand for having a sort of being renowned for delivering quality, useful information on what's happening in health. And you can listen to that full interview in the next episode. If you really like the podcast, make sure you subscribe to us on the internet. It's Beer Ampersand Bites with a Y. And you could also leave us a five star review. We'd be really happy if you did. I just That's love it this for now. music. I really love this music. Do you? Yeah. Should we turn it up? Yep. Bye. Bye.